0: I appreciate the men who serve as elders, Donnie and Joan. Donnie and Joan have some of the finest grandchildren I've ever seen in my life. And I have to like them because of that. I want all of you to listen very, very attentively to everything that I say. And if you find that I'm in error on anything, if I misstate something, I would count you a friend for letting me know that. I want to be right, and I don't want to say anything that's wrong. You have come, some of you, a long way to be here. We appreciate very much that encouragement. I hope that the time will pass in a pleasant, profitable manner for all of us. Our subject at hand this evening concerns Genesis 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. There's no way I can do justice to this chapter, but I would like for us to look at the things that are said in it. The word Genesis is not a part of the original text. It was added by the Greeks many years later, maybe 250 or so years before Christ. And we picked up on that and used that as the title to the book, but there's actually no title to this book. As you'll notice, as Moses is writing the first five books, they're all a continuation. Exodus starts out with and and just keeps going. And that's very typical of many of the ancient writings. The Hebrews just simply called it in the beginning. And they had a number of other ways they described the other books of Moses and other books after that. Genesis means the origin. It's not talking about an origin of God. It's talking about the origin of the universe as he speaks of beginning the very first verse. Psalm 90 verse 2, which is parallel to what we see here in this passage, says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God always was, He is, and He always will be. In Psalm 90, verse 2, is just one of many, many passages that says the same thing, exactly the same thing as Genesis 1. These passages all stand or fall together. There's no way a person can go to Genesis and say, well, I don't think I can believe Genesis, now the rest of it's okay. You don't have that option. And I hope we'll be able to see that as we go along in the study. I remember vividly in the seventh grade, one of my teachers brought in an old 33, some of you are wondering what in the world I'm talking about, a record that played someone reading Genesis 1. And I had never even heard that book, read any part of it in my life, as far as I can recall. And I remember sitting there as this man was reading Genesis 1, absolutely spellbound. And it was very obvious upon looking at that that it's pretty easy to understand. There are things about it we'll never understand because we're dealing with God. We don't have God all figured out. We can't put God in a little capsule. It's like the fellow who goes to the ocean with a thimble and he fills it full and he says, "Now I understand the whole ocean. No, you've just filled your thimble. And as we go through Genesis and the other books, we fill our thimble, but there's much more to this and much more to God than we even know. But we can know what He's told us. And we can know what He wants us to know. And that is very, very important in this age of extreme doubt. Now, as you look at this, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That passage alone assumes... God's existence. In the beginning, God created. 35 times you'll see God used in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. He's the focal point of all that He said here and all that He said ultimately in all the other books in one way or another. And as you look at this, it's telling us what God did and what God said now it so shows also that we can assume he's eternal he had to be before all things for all things to be here so god always existed it affirms god's omnipotence he after all has created the universe imagine someone speaking words and something as great as the universe comes into existence in fact i can't even imagine anything else as great as the universe except god himself he speaks and these things come into existence It shows his absolute freedom God does what he pleases it's always right but he does what he pleases he makes whatever he wants to make he makes it look like what he wants it to look like it's always according to his purpose according to his plan and according to his power it shows his infinite wisdom we call it a cosmos not a chaos for an obvious reason so we have the order of matter and mind that's discussed in this book. It shows us God's goodness. There's no evil in God at all. No reason for it, no motive for it, no capacity for it. When it uses the term God in verse 1, in the beginning God, it uses a plural form. I'm not opposed to the idea that inherent in this word resides the idea of the Godhead. And when you see God in this plural form, as it's used here, that it would include the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we would not know that were it not for other passages besides this one. Because there are times when this word, though it's used regularly in the plural, so is the word for water and other things, while this word is used in the plural, many times it refers to the majestic nature of the one under description. So it would say, God, with this plurality, referring to the majesty of Him. But later in this book, it's going to go on. Later in this chapter, it's going to go on to show us there's more than one being in that Godhead at work in this creation. Now, Herbert Spencer, who was a very, very, very close friend and supporter of Charles Darwin, taught that there were basically five things, five ultimate ideas that encompass all that exists in the universe the first one is time you have to have time or else you have no universe it exists within time there's also the idea of force you have to have force you have to have an action of some sort without these there would be no universe there would be no you and me there has to be space as we see and there has to be matter isn't it interesting that Genesis says in the beginning there's time God, there's force. Created, there's an action. The heavens, there's space. Matter, and there's earth. No scientist before the 19th century had such an itemized list, as far as anybody I know knows. And yet here it is in Genesis 1, 1, the very first book of the Old Testament. It says that in the beginning God created. The universe is not eternal. There was a time when some of the major evolutionists, astrophysicists and others said the universe is eternal. They've given that up. Richard Dawkins just not that long ago, the great uh, almost total atheist, he's 99 point I think 9% sure there's no god. That 1% has killed him. <laughs> but he said almost everybody these days recognizes that the universe had a beginning. If not, the sun would have run out by this time, the laws of thermodynamics and other things that we won't get into. We won't even have time to mention those besides that bare mention that we just made. Genesis 1 affirms that before time, God began His creative work. He began this creative work not from pre-existing materials, but He did it totally out of nothing there was nothing and nothingness God spoke and then there is something and is it something and furthermore it describes when he uses this word for create it describes something that only God does Donnie can take a piece of wood turn it into a masterpiece but he had to get the wood first he doesn't speak the wood into existence God did only God Can start with nothing and end up with something this is the word that's used to describe that great power in verse 2 we have a description of the earth that was referred to in verse 1 so in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now let me talk to you about that earth for a minute is what Moses is saying the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters there's a whole lot in that verse. But he's narrowed down his discussion for a moment to talk about the planet on which we live. There's a little technical thing i want to talk about for a moment before we go further. Verse 1 is not a title, as if he's saying, here's the title to the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2 starts the real narrative. Verse 1 starts the narrative, not the title. Many of you have read Tale of Two Cities, the title of it is "Tell of Two Cities. The first line of it is really lines. He has one sentence that's a huge paragraph that he can get away with that kind of thing. It doesn't say, "Tell of Two Cities. Now, there's a title. And it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. He didn't start out and. That would not make any sense. But if the first words were not a title, he could use an and. That's what we have going on here the expression, the earth was. You won't see this in most of your versions. The old King James still has it. It'll start with the word and in verse 2. Some of you who are sitting there with the old King James, it will say and the earth. And it is in the original. So this is not a title in verse 1. More about that, I hope, in due course. Verse 1 is saying God created. Verse 2, it's the one referred to in verse 1. Now, this... Earth that He created is, first of all, without form at this present moment that's described in Genesis 1. It's without form. Formlessness, emptiness. This word and the next with it, the void, without form and void, are used in Jeremiah 4.23. Both of them used again. Not of creation out of nothing, but describing what happened when... Babylon came and absolutely destroyed the cities of Judah. The typical term they use is it was made desolate. And you'll see as you're going through the prophets, that word "desolate" used over and over and over and over again. And what it means is basically two things: without form. When he says in Jeremiah four twenty-three, I "Beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form," a person could go visit this after the, all the Jews are gone and the destruction has been wrought upon this place, and they look around, they say, "Where are the houses?" Well, they're gone where are the barns that held all the grain in the hay? they're gone where is the road structure we had several roads passing from one city to another. the roads are gone you, in fact you look at this and you see absolutely nothing that makes you think there was ever anybody who ever lived here that's the meaning of that first one without form the second word void that's also in Jeremiah 4 23 it was without form and void that means emptiness You look around and you say, where are all the people? Where are all the priests? Why aren't they at the temple? There is no temple. Where is everybody? There is nobody. That's the description when God starts here in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It's an unfilled mass covered by water and darkness. It's not a place we would want to live at this point. It's very good, but it's not complete. He's not through. He has a starting point. So, the void and the without form are the same as those used in Jeremiah 4, 23. The earth is unproductive and uninhabited. If He had left it like that, we would not be here tonight. We would not be anywhere. That's just how it is. It had to go through some changes, and God knows that, and He's telling us this in the passage. The making and the filling in verses 4 through 6 removes this emptiness, so that now it's filled. Now, the darkness, the Egyptians couldn't do very well in that plague of darkness, could they? That pretty well shut them down. If you have to clean up a room and you can't get the light to turn on, well, good luck to you. If it's very dark in there, you're not going to clean up your room. You're, You're shut down. And here, here's darkness over the face of this deep. The deep referring, of course, to the water that is over the earth's surface. The land is there, but it's covered with water. Now, if you, if we had been around at this moment, if, even though this is not prepared for man at this point, how would we live? Somebody says, well, I'd swim and hold my breath. Well, that's going to give out in a little while, and then you're going to drown. Well, I'd get me a boat. Where are you going to get a boat? There's no wood. You can't even see where one would be if there were a boat. You see, we would just be... In water for a little while, and there's absolutely no light to help us in any way. It tells us then that the Spirit of God was hovering. He was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word that is used in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Of an eagle that stirs up its nest, it hovers over its young spreading out its wings taking them up carrying them on its wings it's trying to teach the little ones how to fly and it hovers there and it shows them how to do it and it helps them do it matthew 3 verse 16 interestingly when the spirit has his role to play at the baptism of jesus jesus when he had been baptized came up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and alighting upon him again the figure of a bird, this time a dove, Deuteronomy 32, of an eagle. The Spirit is hovering here as an eagle's movements, and you see what is going on as a craftsman hovers over his work. You'd see someone in a painting, for example. I used to watch this guy on Saturday afternoons. I'd take 30 minutes out from my study and watch this guy, Bob Ross, Paint. And boy, could he paint. But I'll tell you what he did. He would get started and ten minutes into it, he would put such a daub of a mess on that canvas, I thought, he's ruined it. He just plain ruined it. Nobody's going to want this thing. It's It's a mess. But he knew what he was doing. A little bit of time passed, and that mess turned into a masterpiece. That's what we see here in Genesis The narrative proceeds from this place where it's without form and void to show how in six days God made this most beautiful thing you have ever laid eyes on. And nobody else could have done it. Now, having said that, let there be light in verse 3. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God said occurs ten times in Genesis 1. So this is highlighting... Not merely the person of God, but the power of God. And the way that power is expressed is through His ability to say the Word and it occurs as He says it and when He says it. He no sooner says it and it's done. Let there be light. And there there it is. God said, He spoke this masterpiece into existence. You notice the connection between creation by the Word and Christ the Word. And John 1, the very first words of John echo what we're reading here in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and it would have a capital W on that word because it's referring to a person, Christ. We know that because verse 14 goes on to tell us, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, and so on. In the beginning was the Word. It didn't say in the beginning became the Word. He always was. So the was there stretches Him all throughout all eternity and past, just as it does His Father and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with His Father. God, there, in that usage of it, means the Father. And the Word was God. That did not mean the Word was the Father, but here it's using the Word God in the sense of deity. And all, man, all things, were told in verse 3, were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. We're starting to see a little bit about that plural, aren't we? This wasn't merely the Father acting in Genesis 1, John, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, many passages show that Jesus, and also we've already seen the Spirit, also had their role to play in this creation. When he says, let there be light, that's the first thing God creates, the first created, creative words. And there was light. Why was there light? Because God said so. He says it, and there it is. It didn't evolve. How would light evolve from darkness? Remember, there had been this total darkness, no light at all. How would you get light out of total darkness? Well, God can do that, but it wouldn't evolve that way on its own. And then furthermore, we note that this was a temporary light before the sun. The sun doesn't come along till the fourth day. This is still the first day, but there's light. I can't fully enter into what God does, how He does it, But I do know that in verse 4, God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. So you have the light that is good seven times in Genesis 1. It'll say that. 1 John 1, 5 tells us God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And then we're told that He divided the light from the darkness. There's an alternation. It's dark and it's light. It's dark outside right now. It was light just a little while ago. We still see that same alternation of light and darkness, the succession of one to another. Without the light, especially the sun's light, there's no life on this planet. There is no water cycle. There are no ocean waves. The sun has a major impact on what goes on in this world. It affects the weather. And then, verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness He called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. The light precedes the sun, 1 John 1, verse 5. The day is used in two senses in verse 5. It tells us there's a light portion of the 24-hour period. God called the light day as contrasted with the darkness So here's a 12-hour period that we call day still when we mean the 12-hour period of of light. And the darkness he called night. But then it goes on to show the 24 hours are involved, the evening and the morning. So that gets all the darkness and the light. And that's called a day. That's a full 24-hour day. Now, the evening, it was evening, so that concludes this day and that day's activities. And then there's the morning, that concludes whatever would have gone on at night. But one thing we do know, Skinner, who by no means can be accused of conservatism or belief in Scripture, who nevertheless, in his international critical commentary, makes this observation. The interpretation of yom, I'm sorry for the Hebrew word, it just means day. Uh, the interpretation of this word as eon, a favorite resource of harmonious of science and revelation is opposed to the plain sense of the passage and has no warrant in Hebrew usage let's break that down for just a moment what this scholar and he's admitted to be a great scholar is saying is this some people want to take this little word for day and make it into ages and ages and ages billions and billions of years He says that's a favorite resource of those who try to harmonize science. They think science means that the days are eons, so they have to harmonize this to go along with that. More about that on the Lord's Day. But he says it is opposed to the plain sense of the passage and has no warrant in Hebrew usage. You won't get the Hebrew to say that. That's an invention of men who want to accommodate scientists by saying, yeah, there are long days here, and so that's how we see the reason the starlight shows up very early now in verses 6 and 7 then God said let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which are above the firmament and it was so and God called the firmament heaven so the evening and the morning were the second day there's an expanse here basically a space an open area And in verses 14 to 17, we'll see more about some extra discussions on the levels of this expanse and what all is involved. The Septuagint, the the LXX, is the way they talk about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Since 70 men are said to have translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, maybe 250 or so years before Christ, they use LXX or the 70. They call it then the Latin word Septuagint to refer to the 70. The Greek translation of the Old Testament used the term here that typically meant when someone would take a piece of metal and beat it thin and give it sort of a curve. And that's kind of what the expanse, the space that God made, looks like. Well, Jerome and the Vulgate decided he would take that term and put it into the Latin, the Latin Vulgate, and use the word firmamentum, which also meant something firm, basically. In its original usage. It didn't mean that this was firm in the sense we usually use the term. The King James Version picked up on that and said the English word firmament will do fine here, and it's fine, there's no problem with that. Genesis 1 uses this term interchangeably for the open expanse that is vertical as well as the open expanse that is horizontal, which we're about to see. So the open expanse... Of heavens where the birds fly and of the atmosphere, verses 6 and 7, and then later in verse 20. That's one use of the term. And then the place where God put the lights of heaven in the outer atmosphere, far above the 50 miles that we have this normal atmosphere that's around the earth. We have the stars and all that, and that's also called firmament or expanse. Now, in verse 6, the purpose here, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the water. So there's a vertical separation. There are waters. Remember the waters here? Apparently there's this, some kind of way to hold the water together in such a, a major uh, form that it's right now down next to the water. You, I hate to use the word cloud, but just full of water on top of the water and now he's going to separate between that. Without which we couldn't live we couldn't live in the soup of that and even breathe verse 7 tells us he made the firmament he uses a different verb here from verse 1 but it's also showing that he can take what he's already created and then make something of it just as a workman would take the wood that's already been created and then make a masterpiece out of it that's what God is doing here and then the expression and it was so he'll save the good description till he completes this part of this work on the third day and then the word heaven comes from a root that means to heave if you heave somebody you pick them up you make them go up higher and if god heaves this firmament this expanse he's making a, something be, uh, between this water down here and this huge canopy vapor that's up there so that there's air in between and so if you look at it from the standpoint of what we see here's the water here is the upper atmosphere and here's the expanse in between now the waters in the dry land verses 9 and 10 god said let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so And god called the land dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas and god saw that it was good now the waters under the heavens are gathered Here's a horizontal separation. You've just seen there was a vertical separation so that we could live. We wanted it to be this way with the clouds up there and the water down here and air in between, that's vertical. Now he takes his water that's still covering all the land and he moves it aside so that it gives room now for the ocean as well as the shore that brings us to the land. So the dry ground and the earth. 2 Peter 3 verse 5, the earth was formed out of water. And part of what's involved in that, I believe, is is the saying that there was water that covered this all and then he formed this by letting the water stay over where it was and the land be without that water over here. And he forms this land the way it is and the way it's going to be out of that. Now as we go along in verse 11 through 13, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, "...whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the third day." The earth and the grass. Science agrees that the first form of life was plants. Everything depends upon plants. You you eat beef, they eat grass. So we need the plants for all of life to live. It brought forth according to its kind that's used nine times in Genesis 1 as if to emphasize the fact that it's not going to go beyond the kind that God made it. You plant an orange tree, you get oranges. You have a puppy dog, he's going to give birth, she's going to give birth to, guess what? Puppy dogs. And it's just going to be that way. There can be change within kind, so you have different kinds of puppy dogs. You may have different flavors of oranges, but it's still an orange and it's still a puppy dog. So it's according to its kind. And we're told, and it was so, six times in Genesis we see this. Now, if these days were long eons of time, just keep in mind we have a major problem because some insects have to pollinate some of these plants, and if it's long eons of time, they're not going to be able to do that, and they're not going to live, and the plants will die, and then, by uh, extension, people would die. That can't be. Now, in 14 and 19, then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now that is a major section. Let there be. Notice in verse 9, let the dry land appear. He had made that land on the first day, but it hadn't appeared yet. Let it appear. It was already there. But here, let there be these lights. So whatever light was in the first day is not the light described here let there be light in the firmament in that expanse earth existed before the sun and the moon and the stars earth is on day one this takes us to day four and you notice also the sun radiates light the moon reflects that light but both are sources of light one direct the one indirect the average distance between galaxies is about 20 million trillion miles. Now think about that for a minute. Get that in your head really well. 20 trillion million miles, the distance between galaxies. We talk about the Milky Way galaxy. On any given night, if we could see far enough, if we were to go outside and see the full moon and see that it's about that size that we've just, I've just illustrated, if you were to take that same size circle, And imagine that circle right beside where the moon is. And if you could see far enough, you would see a million galaxies. And then if you were to take another circle beside those two, put it right beside so there's no gap, if you could see far enough, you'd see another million galaxies. And so on, every circle that size all across the sky. I don't know how even to, to comment on that. The size of that is absolutely beyond anything I can comprehend. And God all knows all the stars by name. When you think of Alpha Centauri, our nearest star, it is so far away that traveling at the speed of light, it would take... If we were to go on our spaceships, it'd take 165,000 years to get there. 165,000... Just to get to our nearest star, Alpha Centauri? Yes. This is one huge universe. He said he would divide the day, the night, the signs, the seasons, the days, the years. And then you think about the Milky Way with 200 billion stars, this galaxy that we're in, 200 billion stars. Not even counting all those others we've just referred to. Obviously, what we have is this mighty act of God. And you notice also the signs. That's the word that's used of a banner or a wonder or mighty act of God. Uh, Moses would show signs to his people. Put his hand in his garment and come out leprous and put it back it would be not leprous. Throw the snake on the ground, the water to blood and then back again. But you notice these signs are the ones God has put here for us to be able to predict the weather with them. Not too well sometimes, but we have the ability to do things like that. I'm impressed by what others have said. Uh, Matthew 16, 3, Jesus said, Now you folks, when you see the red sky coming, you say, It's going to be bad weather. There are other things you look at, you look at those signs, you say, Oh, it's going to be fair today. We can tell the weather by these things. He's talking about the same thing here, among other things. Gene Cernan, when he blasted off, He wrote a book called The Last Man on the Moon to describe his adventure. He took off in May of 69. He said in less than 15 minutes, he was 116 miles high, circling the globe, accelerating to 24,300 miles per hour. Then he made this comment. Looking back at Earth, I saw only a distant blue and white star. Out where I was dashing, stars in eternal distant blackness were everywhere. No one in his right mind can see such a sight and deny the existence of a supreme being. Some power placed our little world, our sun and our moon, where they are in the dark void. It is just too perfect and beautiful to have happened by accident. There has to be a design involved. Remember Aaron's excuse in Exodus 32? Is Moses? I don't know what happened to make this calf. I just threw the stuff in there and just came out, and there's his calf. Well, now the text has already shown that he did some work on that thing. He, He was not telling the truth. He's in trouble. But even if he hadn't said it, we would know. You don't just throw some kind of gold in the fire and it comes out and it has this perfectly shaped form of the thing that you wanted to make, like a calf. But how much more is that true of the universe? Suppose you're walking through this beautiful forest and you come to the edge of the trees and you see in this clearing, and out there, there is a village. These houses are beautiful. White picket fences, hay in the lofts, mowed grass, wagons around, children playing, and you say, I wonder what explosion caused that. Do you? That doesn't happen. That's why God is basically saying to us in Genesis 1, if you can believe this stuff got here by itself, then you can believe anything. That's what he's telling us here. You can believe anything. He talks about seasons, the appointed time. They used it of the feasts. uh, Leviticus 23, verse 4. Jeremiah 8, verse 7. The birds observe their seasons. They fly here in the summer and there in the winter. Uh, We have Acts 14, verse 17. God has brought seasons that bring prosperity to man. This is all outlined here for us in Genesis 1. He talks about days and years. The shortest and the longest measures of time are fixed by the movements of the heavenly bodies that God set in motion. Napoleon and his men were coming back from Africa They were on board the ship, and his men were arguing, as was common in those days, whether or not there's really a God. And finally, they said, let's just go ask the emperor. they walked over to where Napoleon was, and they said, do you believe in God? Is there really a God, or is there not? And his mere response was, gentlemen, who made all this? And that was all he had to say. That's what God is saying in this book of Genesis, in chapter 1. Who made all this? The lights, verse 15, in the firmament, the greater and the lesser, the sun and the star. Now, this is directly contradictory to the Babylonian superstition that stars control life or that we should thank our lucky stars that something or other has happened. No, God is the one in control. He's the one who deserves the thanks. Ellen Boyd used to write a column. I used to read it regularly almost every day for years. Someone asked him a question once. Is there a scale model of the universe anywhere? His response was, no, it can't be built. And he gave this illustration. He said, if the earth were a one-inch ball, the nearest fixed star would be 40,000 miles away. That's circle the earth almost two times. So he said, what if we made a smaller model? So what if we made the earth one-fourth inch from the earth to the sun? uh, 93 million miles from the earth to the sun. We'll represent that by one-quarter of an inch. Cover it with a dime. Within that dime, you're going to put Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and Mars will be circling on the circumference of it. When you put Neptune at it, it's going to be 14 inches away. Remember, a quarter of an inch is 93 million miles. Neptune would be 14 inches away in this scale model. The nearest star will be one mile away. And if you want to talk about the center of this galaxy, it will be 6,000 miles away, the distance from Los Angeles to London, England. No, there's never been a scale model of the Earth made. It's just too huge. And notice this expression, and it was so. It didn't say it started to be so, started to become so. Some claim long periods of time for the star light to reach the earth. Listen very carefully. Genesis 1 is written so that the common person can understand it or else I would be in big trouble. But it's dealing with the miraculous. It is telling us what God did by His almighty power. He spoke the universe into existence. He shows us immediately upon creation there's a grown man and grown woman. They don't go through teething. They don't go through keeping their parents up all night because they can't sleep, cutting teeth or whatever. They had no parents. They can talk. They don't know how to cultivate a garden. Day one, you might look at Adam and Eve, and they may look 25 years old. They were created with the appearance of age. You look at the river, it's already in its channels. Now, it may take that channel 100 years to make, maybe longer, but it's already there. Four, four rivers He names in chapter 2. These things are already there. The trees are already bearing fruit. Imagine if God said, Now, Adam and Eve, you wait around, and in about five years, these fruit trees will start bearing fruit, and then you can take care of your hunger. No, these things are created this way. The chicken came first, not the egg. And it had to be that way. We're dealing with the miraculous. The evening and the morning were the fourth day, just as he says, of the first three days. So even without the sun, the moon, and the stars, the first three days have the same descriptive termination as the fourth day when we do have the sun, moon, and stars. This is the fourth day. Now you might look at the vault and remember God is the one who put this expanse there and beyond it we would never we would never be able to reach the end of this no matter how long we tried 165,000 years I'm afraid I wouldn't make it to Alpha Centauri alive I don't expect to live quite that long imagine going to the end of the universe The end of all those galaxies? No, it's just too big. The living creatures, 20 to 23. God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. In verse 20, you have verses 11 and 12. The earth, now that's in position to start growing things, is not covered by all this water, starts bringing forth grass. There are living creatures that populate the waters. Literally, let the waters swarm with swarms, is what God says. But the translators put it into a little bit different English for our benefits. The birds, the winged creatures, populate the expanse, this lower atmosphere. This cancels the void that we saw in verse 2. Now, instead of being without form and void, it's formed and it's occupied. That's why God wanted it. So the grown Birds are created with the ability to fly just as Adam and Eve are created with the ability to talk and to think and to understand. Great sea creatures, verse 21. Many call them sea monsters. The Mesopotamian myths used to make great stories out of such things. But Moses stayed totally away from lies like that and stayed just with the facts that God gave him. And then according to its kind, again, nine times in Genesis 1, reproduction, not change into other kinds. It's a shame what... Our children here from kindergarten on up that's direct con- directly contradictory to what we're reading here the reproduction not changing other kinds it's good it's instantaneous it's not eons of time and he said be fruitful and multiply fill the waters multiply on the earth 24 and 25 the cattle the livestock the domestic animals are created according to their kind the creeping things to move about lightly are to glide about the beasts, the wild animals the game and day six is the most important one of all. You have man's creation. This is the summit of what God has done. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image, and in the image of God He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let us, plural, make man in our image, plural, and after our likeness, plural. As we saw in John 1, 1, we know Jesus was here, and as we saw in verse 2, the Spirit is here. Let us make man in our image. Image That's plural, obviously, the Godhead in this crescendo of creation. Let us make man. Deuteronomy 4, verse 32, highlights what God did here when Moses, the same author, human author, writes, For ask now concerning the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. He refers back to that as a matter of historical relevance for that present generation many, many years later. We're made in His image. He says as much in James 3. You you curse man who's made in the image of God? That's, That's quite daring. No animal can evolve into God's likeness. But as Adam was made in His image, the incarnated Son is made in the image also of Adam. So God, man, and man, God. Let them have dominion, as Psalm 8 so eloquently says, and his Hebrews 2, so eloquently elaborates on. And then it says he created the male and female. Notice, he doesn't create them half men. He doesn't create a man-woman, so he's really unsure about what he is. He doesn't create a man and a man, and he doesn't create a woman and a woman. Isn't that interesting? This God with all this power, with all this wisdom, the God before whom we shall stand and give an account, makes it plain in the first chapter of His book what He wants in a marital relationship. Jesus quotes this and says, As it was then, so let it be now. It's very, very simple. He blessed them, we're told, not only with gifts, but with purpose. There is nothing greater in a person's life than having a purpose for your existence. And God gives it to us here, starting here. Be fruitful, He says, the powers of reproduction and marriage. And He says, subdue. You have dominion over the animals. That's not politically correct today, but man has dominion over the animals. And then in verse 29, And God said... See, I've given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. God has given all this. He saw everything that He had made, and it was very good. The sixth day He blesses in this manner. He said, and it was so he provides the food, all the creatures depend upon the plants as we've seen, and He analyzes it all by saying it was very good. All that God did was good. It took man to bring evil into this situation. In chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. The host is used oftentimes of angels, the heavenly host, who are at His beck and call. All He needs is one, and He did not even have to have that one. But He can send these messengers and they'll do His will. The host of heaven can refer to the angels. The host of heaven can refer to the stars and all the things that God has made. But then when you combine these, there are certain passages that seem to be neither just the angels and neither just those stars and other things He's put in creation, but to His nature for being able to make those things so that we say God's majesty, His almighty power is what's referred to when we call Him the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord in control of everything is above all. And then he says it is finished. It's come to an end. And the result of this is he's put a stop to this act of creation. The host of them, the earth and all the hosts were finished. And then on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. He ended his creative work. He didn't end other types of work. He still upholds all things by the word of His power and by His Son. Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1 and various other passages. And it tells us He rested. It doesn't mean He was tired or that He retired. That He said, now I've, I've finished my job. Somebody else can take over. But it means He completed His task. Hebrews 4.10 and commenting on it, it says, for He who has created, who, He who has entered His rest has Himself also ceased from His works as God did from His. It just means He stopped His work of creation. And then when it says that he ceased in verse 2, he didn't have to look at it, analyze it, and say, you know, I kind of messed that part up. I need to go back and work on that. Now, that's me. If I build something, I always have to, many times, start at the very beginning. God never has that problem. It's always perfect the very second it comes into being. Deism tells us that God created the universe Then it's like a clock. He took it, he wound it up, he sat it on a mantle, and then he just said, now, you're on your own. That he's never had anything to do with anything in this universe from this first creation week until now. Many passages give the lie to that. John 5, verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Working, yes, creating, not in the sense he's using here. So you have a threefold emphasis here. God finished, verse 1. He ended, verse 2, and He rested, or ceased, verse 3. And then in verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. He didn't command people to observe the seventh day until Exodus 20, but He sets the pattern for it in Genesis 1. He created and He made using both of the words we've seen in Genesis 1 synonymously here. And we're obviously able to say that these are not simple organisms that continued to progress through eons of time and finally they come into existence as other beings. Nothing like that in this text, totally foreign to it. Now, that's our introduction. Now we come to the main points of the lesson. I hope nobody has a heart attack from me saying this. These two points are very short. Genesis 1 contradicts many errors. In Acts 17, verse 23, when Paul is at uh, Athens and he's speaking to the Athenian philosophers, he, he, he says, now, I saw this inscription to the unknown God. That's one I want to talk to you about. The one you don't know is the one you need to know. It's not a polytheism, so that there's this God and that God, Molech is a God, and Baal is a God, and all these others are God. No, this is a one God operation in the sense of deity. Three persons within that godhood, but only one godhood. He destroys the idea of the eternality of matter. It's God, in verse 24, who made the world and everything in it. So it wasn't already there if He had to make it. It destroys the idea of Gnosticism, that matter is evil, that you have demiurges who work their way up to the point where some of them become on a level with this God that you want to be. Nothing like that here. Matter was not evil in itself. And then it destroys theistic evolution. Dirt and rocks didn't create anything. They are themselves created. And so he makes it very plain for us. then number two, George Wald of Harvard, a neurobiologist, acknowledged the absurdity that chance created the universe. He said, one has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. In ancient Egypt, they would take a slab of meat and leave it lying out, and a day or two later, they'd see these little creatures crawling all over the place. And they said, look at that. Life came from non-living substances. They just spontaneously generated. How about that? Isn't that the way we got here? So he says, that's impossible. George Wald says it right. It is impossible. Then he says, yet here we are. As a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. You need to help me understand this, man? Now, how is this possible? Here's his answer. Spontaneous generation is impossible. Yet here we are by spontaneous generation. Why? Time is, in fact, the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible. Time itself performs the miracles. Given enough time, the miraculous will happen. And they laugh at the credulity of a Christian. Unbelievable. So rocks and dirt are our parents. Given enough time, we came from rocks and dirt. Think about it given enough time. And then number two, it's about time. The accounts of the origin of life in other religions are trivial. They're silly. The accounts of the flood, all these things are just beyond the pale. But there is nothing childish or silly about Scripture. If we say, as was said long ago, "In the beginning was mind We may be expressing or trying to express a great truth, but we have gone beyond science in the two words. Science can't tell you about it unless it observes it. Nobody was present at the creation with a camera to video what took place. Jesus was there. And He does tell us what took place. God was there, and Genesis 1 is telling us what took place. No evolutionist was there to contradict that. Professor... Dompier Whedon, who died in 1952, but it was in the 1920s, he came up with a compilation, a book called Cambridge Readings in the Literature of Science. Now listen to this. He included extracts from the most influential works of science from the days of the Greeks. He included Aristotle, Galen, the great physician, Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, Kepler, Herschel, Laplace, Pasteur, Faraday, Lord Kevin, and so on. On the first of this great collection you can see this online on the first page of this great collection without comment this great scholar places the entire first chapter of Genesis he says there it is my how times have changed in a few short years I've never seen an audience listen better than you've listened this evening. I certainly appreciate that, and it shows the attention you have for the study of the Word of God. If you get your books and turn to the song that has been selected, it'll be our purpose. Now to ask a very simple question. If God is what He claims to be, if Jesus is indeed His Son, who is willing to create us, who is willing to die for us, to rise from the dead, to give us His Word, to invite us to come and live with Him forever, wouldn't it be the most important, the paramount duty of all of our lives to take advantage of that opportunity? Jesus tells us, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. He tells us we must repent. If we don't, we will all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. He tells us we must be willing to confess Him if we want Him to confess us, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And we also know that he tells us he who believes in his baptized will be saved. If you don't want that, you can just leave off the baptism and that will take care of being condemned. Who wants that? If there's any way you need to come to him this evening, we invite you to do so as we stand to sing for encouragement.